Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Well, hello and welcome to today's episode of High Energy Health. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for sharing this space with us today. I am Miriam Paninsky, your guest host for the next weeks. And today I have the great pleasure to be in conversation with the fabulous Dr. Judson Brewer. Welcome, Judson. Thank you so much for making it. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to introduce you quickly to our audience who may not know you. So Dr. Brua is a psychiatrist, addiction psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and New York Times bestselling author of The Craving of the Mind and his recent book, Unwinding Anxiety. And Judson is really conducting this groundbreaking work in the field of habits and cravings and addictions, scientifically studying and applying the mechanisms of mindfulness and meditation to treat addiction, if I may say this in my in my own words, for the lack of better better words. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Judson. And Judson and I actually share the institution and the workplace in Providence, so to say, as he's the director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center here at Brown University, where I'm conducting my PhD research in the humanities on perinatal trauma and Judson, I'm just such a big fan of your work. It's tremendously important. And I think you also as a figure are very important being and both both an evidence-based scientist and also a senior meditator. And the way you, you incorporate both of these worlds in your work, I think is quite phenomenal. And I'm so glad to get this opportunity to talk to you today. So in a nutshell, in your fairly new book, Unwinding Anxiety, with the subtitle, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, you're basically distilling 20 years of research as well as provide a step-by-step clinically proven plan breaking those cycles that drive anxiety and addictive habits. So Judson, to start at the very beginning, would you please give us a definition of addiction and habits for our audience and for me, who is not a neuroscientist, and how your definition might actually differ from earlier definitions? Yes, I think the definition I learned in residency when I was trained to be a psychiatrist was very simple, which is basically continued use despite adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the I think it's the American Association of Addiction Medicine or something, you know, one of the societies for for addiction basically re-updated their uh, their definition, and it basically says the same thing. It's you know, continue just despite adverse consequences in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. The reason I like that definition, one, was that it's easy for me to remember. <laughs> you know, it's pretty <laughs> short. But also it really captures the essence of addiction, which it's not just about classic, you know, alcohol or opioids or stimulants, you know, or whatnot, but it's really about the behavioral component that we get locked into, regardless of the substance or the behavior. You know, they're 
plenty of addiction is actually being broadened to expand beyond just classic addictions to now include things like internet gaming addiction. And I would say, you know, social media is something that a lot of people may be addicted to just and even texting, you know, there's now right. been shown that texting is more dangerous than drunk driving. So if you want to, you want to bring texting into the continued use despite adverse consequences, you could say that it actually fits that definition. So basically, we may all have some kind of addiction. Yes. And I would say, you know, I think of this as a psychiatrist, There, we have this big book of all these different quote unquote conditions, and mostly that's just for billing purposes. So I really like to think of this as, you know, we all have one condition. It's called the human condition. <laughs> and and within that condition, you know, we have these mechanisms that actually help us survive that ironically get hijacked that lead down the path of addiction. In your book, you describe a light bulb moment in your in your unwinding anxiety book. You describe this light bulb moment you had moment you had when it came to anxiety. And in relation to habits in your addiction patients. And I would really like to for you to say a little bit more about this light bulb, bulb moment and how this correlated with yourself and your own experiences. And you very openly share about your panic attacks. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of goes hand in hand and with what we just said, that we kind of all have some form of, of addiction um, eventually, probably. So maybe you could share a little bit more about this particular light bulb moment. I'd be happy to. And I would, I'll start this by saying I've never met anyone that's never, ever been anxious. <laughs> you know, And so that can, that probably is part of the human condition. And for some of us that can get up to the far end of the spectrum. Like for me, when I used to get panic attacks during residency. So the light bulb moment came from actually some habit work I'd been doing We had developed this app called Eat Right Now to see if we could use mindfulness training to help people with overeating and stress eating and emotional eating. And this was kind of built on some work that I'd done previously with smoking. You know, we'd, we'd done a randomized controlled trial and we'd gotten five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking. So we were thinking, wow, that's pretty good. Can this actually be applied to eating? You know, Smoking, you don't have to smoke to survive, but you do have to eat to survive. So there's there's some nuance there that makes it more challenging. And I like challenges. So we developed this program. And as people were using it, they, you know, we ha would have people kind of map out these habit loops around stress or emotional eating. And somebody said to me, you know, anxiety is triggering my eating habits. Could you create a program for anxiety? And my first thought was, Well, you know, I learned in medical school to per, to prescribe medications for anxiety. And so I was thinking, well, you know, I, I haven't really thought about anxiety. But when the person mapped it out, it kind of put a bug in my ear. And I went back and looked at the scientific literature to see if there was something there that linked anxiety to habits. And in fact, Thomas Borkovic and others had described this back in the 1980s. And what they described was that anxiety can be driven in a process called negative reinforcement, just like any other habit. And for me, that was a light bulb moment where, you know, they didn't describe it as a habit, but they said negative reinforcement. And I'd been doing a bunch of work with negative and positive reinforcement around eating. And so for me, I was like, oh, I never thought about anxiety as potentially being driven like a habit. 
And so then, of course, you know, as a as a researcher and a clinician, my brain said, well, let's develop a program for anxiety based on it as a habit loop. Mm-hmm. Can we get, you know, can we get effective you know, treatment that way? Long story short, you know, with medications, for example, there's this, this term in medicine called number needed to treat, meaning how many patients you need to give a treatment to before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. For medication, that number is 5.2. So for me, I basically play the medication lottery because for every five patients I treat, only one of them shows a significant benefit from medication. So here I was struggling with getting my own anxiety, you know, helping my patients with their, their anxiety. I had had panic attacks back in residency and had found that my own mindfulness training was really helpful for that. And then here, this third piece comes together that gives me that light bulb moment that says, hey, you know, anxiety could be driven like a habit. And so we started researching it. Long story short, in, you know, we've now done several randomized controlled trials. And we found in a trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder, so really, you know, like constant anxiety, we could get a 67% reduction in anxiety on average, 67% reduction it with, with people using an app, you know, it, this unwinding anxiety app for anxiety. The number needed to treat there, remember from medication, it's 5.2. The number needed to treat was only 1.6. And so that said to us, oh, you know, there's, there's really something here that, that can be helpful. And we, we went on to look at the mechanism and, you know, find out mechanistically how it was working. But as a clinician, those are the numbers I like to see because, you know, I'd rather treat one and a half patients and see one patient do really well as compared to five. And I think that's that's really incredibly powerful. Also, like speaking from my own story, you know, if you're like, if you have a lot of anxiety due to whatever CPTSD and whatever, whatever it is, wherever you may come from, at some point, you know, in, in my life, I remember these moments where I felt I was my anxiety. There was no, there was no distance between me and my anxiety. Yeah. But actually describing it as a as a habit is another form of detaching from it and developing what you call, I don't know if you call it curiosity or kind of like an input, there's different terms for for whatever we can use to kind of just take a take a distance, detach, witness our anxiety as being something that has, even if it's a little bit in the beginning, a little gap, mm-hmm. but a little gap bit of, of distance between between us, between ourselves. So I think that's that's tremendously helpful. And now that you mention uh, mindfulness, please please tell us the, what the role of mindfulness and meditation play in your work. And um, also, is mindfulness the same as meditation? Yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. So if we think about even going back to this gap that you're talking about, you know, I remember somebody who was pilot testing our own wedding anxiety app, writing me an email saying, I feel like this anxiety is deeply etched in my bones, right? That's how identified she was with her anxiety. And what mindfulness, I think of mindfulness as having two sides of, of one coin, which is awareness and curiosity. So we, we can be aware of something and bring that attitude of being curious so that we're not judging, we're not identifying, we're simply being aware of what's happening as clearly as possible without any bias. And what that can do, you know, this reminds me that gap that you're talking about reminds me of the observer effect in physics, where 
you know, basically by observing, you know, these very subatomic particles, they found that they would use photons, for example, to measure the mass of an electron. And by doing that, they found that they were affecting the weight of the electron and they had to take that into account in their calculations. So they called that the observer effect. By observing, you affect the results of the, of the experiment. In psychology, I think the same is also true, which can be very, very beneficial and relates directly to mindfulness, which is if we can notice and we can observe a thought, for example, or observe an emotion, we're less identified with it because there's this gap between the knower and the known, right? So as compared to thinking, I'm an anxious person, we can notice, oh, I'm a person and there's a feeling of anxiety or here's a, a worry thought. And by seeing them, we provide that perspective, that distance, simply through observing and being curious about them. And the more curious we are, the less identified we are, because we're we're able to really, you know, instead of going, oh, no, I'm anxious and go, oh, what does anxiety feel like in my body? You know, mm-hmm. and in that way, it gives us this gap to see I am not my anxiety. These are thoughts. These are emotions. And that gives us a huge amount of freedom, especially the more we can notice them to change our relationship to them and notice them rather than be identified with them. Yeah, it's, that's fantastic. So um, speaking of this, this um, awareness and curiosity, um, of course, you know, that that plays so many sounds of like these these just ancient Buddhist or meditation scriptures, these kind of old, these these ancient, this ancient wisdom, so to say. What what role does this what role do these old scriptures play in your in your practice or in your work? I would say that all of my work is based on these. And the way I think of this is that. You know, for example, if you look at the Pali Canon, these canonical teachings of the Buddha, that what they describe is that the Buddha was contemplating this concept called dependent origination on the night of his awakening, right? And so he wasn't even deep in some absorptive meditation practice. He was actually contemplating what he described as cause and effect, you know, and starting to see, you know, what it was that was causing suffering. And by seeing that process clearly and that it was selfless, uh, he apparently became awakened and he said, you know, this is actually really important. So, so it's, it's described quite a bit in the suttas. We, I worked with a Pali scholar to look at that concept because it looked really familiar in the sense that it was basically describing positive and negative reinforcements in, in that's, you know, was quote unquote discovered in modern day. And we found that, you know, we published a scientific paper on this even showing that these two are, it's basically this different language for the same thing. So one, that was really interesting. It's kind of like, oh, we've rediscovered this, this ancient, you know, they call it the law. You know, it's like, this is, this is the law of cause and effect. But in modern day, the science is all pointing toward this is how addictions form. This is how habits form. Even anxiety can be driven this way. So it's re- it gives us a lot of explanatory power to really target these things. And the other thing that it says is, you know, look at the results of the behavior. You know, they talk in Buddhism a lot about karma being cause and effect. If you look at modern day neuroscience and you look at positive and negative reinforcement, it's called reinforcement learning or reward based learning because the behaviors get reinforced based on how rewarding they are. 
So if you look at the ancient Buddhist suttas again, uh, there's I'll paraphrase, but basically they talk about exploring gratification to its end. There's this line that I think I remember that goes something like, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end that knowledge and vision arose. And the Buddha was basically saying, that's when I became awakened. That's when, when I became enlightened. And if we look at that, that fits perfectly with the modern day neuroscientific formulas around habit change. And, and that's based on, you know, if something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop doing it. So if we pay attention and just look at the cause and effect, like if I smoke a cigarette, how does that actually taste? You know, and I have my patients do this. They pay attention and they realize that cigarettes taste like crap. And it makes it much easier to quit smoking because they become disenchanted with the behavior. Right. In fact, we just published a study. This was led by one of my postdocs, Verity Taylor, where we looked at, we created this craving tool in our Eat Right Now app. And we had people pay attention as they overate, right? Explore that gratification to its end. Basically pay attention and see what you get from overeating. Ready for this? It only took them 10 to 15 times of doing this for that reward value to drop below zero and for them to start shifting behavior. So, you know, this points to, you know, we basically just look at what these Buddhist, you know, uh, psychological teachings say. And we say, okay, can we translate that into modern day? And can we test it? In modern day, do these theories work? They work pretty darn well. You know, 67% reduction in anxiety. We get five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking. And here within 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overeat, their behavior shifts. That's that's pretty remarkable. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And I, and I want to go back to positive and negative reinforcement in our next segment. But before we go into break, I have, I have one last question for you that relates to, to I think what you just talked about is, um, you describe in your book a painful lesson you learned, which is the less you know, the more you say. I'd like you, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that. It, I think I thought it was hilarious, especially you know, since since I'm also kind of partially in this world of academia and humanities, where I I would like I would be curious to see like <laughs> to see more people creating more silence in these lecture halls. But yeah, if you say a little bit more about this painful, what do you describe as this painful lesson? Definitely. Yes. So this, this can even, you know, many people might have heard of Occam's razor, which is basically parsimony. You know, the, the simplest answer is usually the right one. <laughs> and this also, so this applies to science. This applies to academia in general, like you're pointing out. You know, the more we look, look into things, the simpler they tend to get because we start to understand whether something's universal or, or whether it's, it's just wrong. And the more we have to add, you know, asterisks to, you know, a formula or to an explanation or add, you know, well, this applies only here and not here, the more that suggests that we probably don't really know what we're talking about. And I found this especially true in my own case when uh, training to be a psychiatrist where, you know, I would learn, I was learning to do long-term psychotherapy with patients. And I would find that just observing myself with, with a patient and trying to kind of you know, do psychotherapy, whether it was an interpretation or something like that, the, the more I said, the more I was actually digging myself into a hole, you know, there's this, this rule of thumb, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging, but we, we find that our own anxiety 
can drive us to keep talking more and more and more. So here, you know, when we feel, we start to get anxious and we think, you know, we look at our patient and they, they're fidgeting because they don't know what we're talking about. That anxiety can drive us to do even more where we talk more and more and more just as a way to kind of fill the silence or try to make up for our, our past problems. So here, another saying that I learned in, in residency was, you know, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. And so we can learn to be comfortable in silence. We can also learn to kind of stop while we're behind. And instead of keep talking and talking and talking, we can step back and say, oh, maybe I didn't nail that. Maybe I didn't hit the mark there. Let me just pause, mm-hmm. take a breath, and even just say to our patients, be honest and say, wow, not sure I got that one right, you know, and then open it back up to them. And in the same way, open our own vulnerabilities and say, you know, I might not have gotten that right uh, instead of just trying to correct ourselves. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for that. So we will be right back and um, we have a couple of minutes of break. Please come back to us with to this wonderful conversation with Dr. Judd. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode today um, with our guest, Dr. Judson Brewer. I'm Miriam Paninski, your guest host. Thank you so much for tuning back in with us. So I want to just go back to what you, Judson, just told us about positive and negative um, reinforcement and kind of also the, the interconnection with these ancient scriptures. So, you know, for me, even, even after decades of practice of meditation and exploring modes of therapy and being an EFT practitioner, I myself was actually quite oblivious of the impact of our story, our patterning in regards to my food habits, for instance. So I never, I never sort of say had to pay attention to it until actually until I realized how big the implications sugar, gluten and dairy had on my energy level, my gut health, my nervous system. And I was always on the, but I was always on the skinny side. I like generally generally always liked healthy food my yoga practice and so on but i'm also from vienna austria which is the heaven of pastry and cake and i grew up in a family of phenomenal cooking that was at the same time the family in which i experienced systematic abuse and at some point years ago in my clinical eft training actually we trained on how to work with clients on cravings and we're encouraged to work on our own cravings by bringing the drug of choice, so to say. And in my case, that would be cake and pastry. And after all these years of studying my own PTSD and the trauma of others as well, I did not see it coming, how emotionally flooded I got in this work on craving and how tremendously huge the emotional soothing effect of cake the cake had on me. So Judson, if you could please enlighten us with your own words, why do we prefer cake to broccoli. And this is also the chapter of one of your phenomenal chapters in, in, in your book. Yes. So this goes back to our basic survival mechanisms, you know, where our bodies were, they have been des- kind of designed or evolved to really uh, basically get as many calories as we can, because it's, you don't, you never know when there's going to be famine, you know, our ancient ancestors didn't have refrigerators or takeout or food delivery. 
you know, they had to find the food, they had to remember where it was, and then they had to find new food sources when those sources ran out. And the way that works is basically, you know, through positive reinforcement. So three elements to both positive and negative reinforcement, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So for finding and remembering where food is, we'd forage around. When we found food, there'd be the trigger. We'd see it. Then the behavior would be that we would eat the food. And then the result would be our dopamine, our stomach would send this dopamine signal to our brain that said, remember what you ate and where you found it. So we would lay down this context dependent memory that says, Hey, you know, this is where food is. And then it would feed back. So the next time we're hungry, we would have an urge to go get the food. And it's interesting, dopamine firing shifts from finding food when there's unexpected, you know, some unexpected reward, like, oh, here's food. Didn't, you know, didn't notice that to when it, when we know where the food source is, the dopamine firing shifts from kind of receiving the food to anticipating it. So it starts to fire and says, Hey, go get some food, go get some food. And that's where cravings come from. So we have an urge to go get some food. Not when we first run across the food and we eat it, you know, it's kind of like, Oh, food, let me eat some. And then we learn, Oh, that's good food. The next day when we're hungry, our brain says, Hey, go get some food. And it urges us into action. So their uh, craving has this restless driven quality to it, which is actually pretty unpleasant. So when we have that urge, this is where negative reinforcement comes in. So Negative reinforcement works in a similar way. Positive reinforcement basically is to go keep pleasant things going. Negative reinforcement has to do with making unpleasant things go away. So for example, if we learn to, if we're stressed out and we learn to eat as a way to avoid being stressed, then the reward is less stress, at least because we're avoiding it. Or I had a patient with a binge eating disorder who would eat food as a way to numb herself from her negative emotions. That's the way she described it. It was, a, it was a numbing effect. And cravings themselves, because they feel unpleasant, when we eat food or do whatever you know we do to satisfy whatever the craving is, and satisfaction is not really the best word because it's only this brief relief that we get from it and then we want more. But because craving is unpleasant, craving can be the trigger we do the behavior, which makes the craving go away, at least temporarily. And that result says, hey, do it again. So that's where craving comes in. It, it biologically was set up to help us you know, survive. Mm-hmm. And in modern day is set up in a way that especially when behaviors and food and chemical substances can be engineered to be really addictive, to really be, you know, to promote that dopamine the more the more we can get addicted to things you know like stress eating or going on social media when we are when we're anxious or even bored so with these cravings and habits you you say you actually argue against you kind of argue against willpower <laughs> but what do we do so how do we how do we how do we interrupt this cycle yes and it, you know i laugh when you say argue against I just look at the neuroscience and there's not a lot of neuroscience supporting willpower as the way to go. Let's just say it's, it's more myth than muscle. And if we look at anybody that's tried to lose weight or tried to use willpower as a long-term strategy for any behavior, you know, this is where yo-yo dieting comes from. This is where, you know, willpower failure basically comes in almost, you know, for most people. It's, it's, it's really a struggle. And the one of the, so looking at the neuroscience, 
it makes a lot of sense that willpower would be more myth than muscle because that's not how our brains work. Our brains learn and reinforce and repeat behaviors based on how rewarding they are. So in that formula, there's actually a formula that was developed in the 70s and is still used today by these two researchers, Rescorla and Wagner. So this Rescorla and Wagner model basically says the only way to change a behavior is basically through awareness. You can update the behavior if it's, if, you know, if you do the behavior again and, and you notice that it's really rewarding. Like, for example, if I eat a piece of cake from a new bakery down the street and it's like the best cake I've ever had, my brain says, "Ooh, remember that. Go eat that cake again. It's called positive, a positive prediction error because it's better than expected. Or if I eat the cake from there and I'm like, eh, it's not that great. I get a negative prediction error. And that's, that's how we change behaviors. It has nothing to do with willpower and it has everything to do with awareness, which goes back, you know, that experiment that I mentioned that we published recently, you know, we just have people pay attention as they overeat and they get that negative prediction error that says, Hey, overeating isn't actually as great as I thought. And that's what helps us change a behavior, not willpower. So again, it comes back to awareness, to curiosity, to Mm -hmm. noticing. Yeah, it does. It's it's really, you know, we can map out these habit loops around anxiety or eating or social media or whatever. That's the first step is just to become aware of it. And the second step is really, I like the simple question, just asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And if we can start to see that we're not getting anything, if we smoke a cigarette and it tastes like crap, or we overeat and we don't feel good, or we worry, and it doesn't actually, it actually makes us more anxious then we become disenchanted with those behaviors. So you really have your your patients map all of those those patterns and behaviors, I suppose. I do. And it's nice because it's only three elements, right? The bit, the trigger, the behavior, and the reward. And if somebody, you really only need two elements there because triggers don't reinforce the behavior. It's how rewarding the behavior is. So even if we can't map out what triggered a behavior, we can see what the behavior is, right? We generally can see that pretty clearly. And then we can just look to see what the results of the behavior are. It's really that simple. Thank you so much for this explanation. We will be right back. We'll go into our second little break. Please come right back to this phenomenal conversation with Dr. Judd. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. Um, I'm Miriam Paninsky talking to my great guest, Dr. Judson Brewer. Judd, I want to, um, I'm interested. So we just talked about mapping, mapping these habits. And you also mentioned earlier that our smartphones are among the biggest addictions, I think, of, of, of our times, probably, and dangerous also, if you think of texting while driving, um, as you mentioned. So I'm wondering, so one of your one of your tools, so to say, is this app, which is on a smartphone, <laughs> possibly. So so how how do you call it the, the the greatest weapon of 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 distraction? What about this, and what what does this app do, and how do your clients use it? And and tell us about all the the work, and how did you say how did you science the shit out of um out of the creation of this this app? Yes. So I love this. I ran across, the, across this quote from Cornell West, who called our smartphones these weapons of mass distraction. Right? And they're really designed, especially if we have all of the, you know, all of our alerts 
on on our phones. You never know when you're going to get a text or you know an email or whatever. And that's the most reinforcing type of behavior. It's called intermittent reinforcement, which is basically random reward. You never know when something's going to happen. So, you know, what I, when I was studying this, I started thinking about, well, my patients don't learn to get anxious in my office. They don't learn to overeat in my office. They don't learn to smoke in my office. Can I bring my office to them? <laughs> and this is about 10 years ago now, actually, uh, early on in the, in the development of digital therapeutics. But I started just asking this question. Could we, could we take my office and deliver it to people through their own smartphones? So we, we took our evidence-based trainings first with the smoking. So we developed this app called Craving to Quit. That was our first digital therapeutic to see if we could deliver these programs in short bite-sized pieces that people could follow in a progressive manner, you know, so they would build on each other over the course of three to four weeks. You know, 10 minutes a day, people didn't have to come into my clinic. They didn't have to get childcare. You know, they, there are a lot of ways that this could really benefit people. And in particular, we could help people with their cravings in context. So we started we first with a smoking program, even did a study where we looked at the neural mechanisms of how the app could change people's brain reactivity and that could predict clinical outcomes. So this is... <laughs> You know, and then we developed this Eat Right Now app to see if we could apply this to eating, got a 40% reduction in craving related eating. This was a study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF and then developed this unwinding anxiety app based on this, this light bulb moment around, oh, anxiety could be a habit as well. And uh, like you said, we science, we science the shit out of it. We did a lot of studies to see how this mechanism worked from cravings for smoking and food to even worry as its own mechanism. So the way these programs work is basically, you know, it's 10 minutes a day, videos, animations, and in the moment exercises. So people can learn to become aware and curious of their cravings, of their worry, whatever, map it out, start to go through these practices of really exploring what they're getting from these behaviors. So they become disenchanted and then get what I call find that bigger, better offer, the BBO. Because our brains are set up to do things that are rewarding. So can curiosity and even kindness itself be a more rewarding behavior? For example, a lot of my patients who struggle with binge eating uh, have a very negative self-image. Mm -hmm. And I remember a patient in particular who, you know, she was eating, you know, as a way to numb herself from her negative emotions. And she would beat herself up over you know, over binging. And that would actually trigger another binge because that's the only way she knew how to you know, work with her emotions to cope. So we started introducing just a kindness practice for herself so she could see which one feels better. And for all of us, I don't know anybody that would prefer to beat themselves up over to being kind to themselves. So our brains, you know, to our brains, it's a real no brainer. And so here we can, we can shift these old behaviors, shift out of the habit loops into new habits of being curious and new habits of even being kind to ourselves because they feel better. Yeah. And I think many times we just don't realize the way we talk to ourselves. And I was, I was, I was going to say, I think, of course, you know, as for many, many people working in academia, I also struggle with, with, uh, with procrastination at times. Mm -hmm. um, but what I struggle in, in relation to procrastination is the the severe self-judgment for procrastinating. So I'm actually having, having, 
having two. So I'm having two habits here that, yeah. that, that hit me at the same time, basically. I procrastinate, I judge myself, I procrastinate, I judge, you know, this kind of loop. So how does, how does mindfulness come into play here with this kindness practice? So here, if it's self-judgment, and I, I like how you're just mapping out these two habit loops that can become the triggers for each other, right? So, you know, we judge ourselves, we procrastinate, we judge ourselves, we procrastinate, and they kind of feed on each other. Here we can, with let's just use self-judgment, we can simply map out that habit loop. So we might have a thought, oh, I'm procrastinating. That leads to the behavior of judging ourselves. Oh, you know, I'm a bad person because I procrastinate. And then, you know, what's the result? Well, it feels like we're doing something. We can at least judge ourselves as compared to, you know, doing something else. So we can map out that habit loop, ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? You know, oh, it's actually just feeding itself. And then we can ask, well, what's it like to simply bring some kindness into myself as compared to judging myself? Which one feels better? So when we can notice and start to just bring in simple kindness practices, that can help us step out of these self-judgmental habit loops, which then frees up the energy to, you know, to do things that are a little more skillful than just simply getting stuck in these judgmental habit loops. And I want to go back right to these kindness practices after our last little break. Please come right back to this great conversation in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back to this last uh, little slot um, of this great conversation in this high energy health podcast with Dr. Judson Brewer. So we were just talking about um, kindness practices within it with interrupting our 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 habits. Please say a little bit more about that. Um, is that can we call that self compassion as well? So it's self love, self compassion. Say a little bit more about the practice and how you encourage those in your with your with your patients. Well, there are many ways that we can practice kindness, and so whether it's through self compassion practices, whether it's you know in in Buddhist practices, they often talk about loving kindness practice. Uh, or even just reflecting on what it feels like uh, to receive the kindness of others. You know, often there are contemplation practices where we contemplate this or that as a way to kind of bring up the experience of, of that thing. So, for example, for those of us that are really have instilled long-term habits of judging ourselves, it can really feel challenging to cognitively be kind to ourselves or even imagine, oh, how can I be kind to myself? Or it can even feel very selfish, you know, when we should be focusing on other people. Mm -hmm. So here it can be as simple as just reflecting on what it's like, you know, last time somebody was truly did something kind to us. So we just remember the situation and then feel into what it felt like. So maybe we can even just do this together. So think of the last time somebody did even a small act of kindness for you, feel into your body and anybody listening can do the same thing. And now just take a moment and just describe in simple words or phrases what that feels like. Yeah, I think there's instant ease and relaxation that yeah. both feels physical, but also mental. It's this real, this, this sigh of relief, so yeah. to say, our whole nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, this I'm, is something I'm okay. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's okay. I'm okay. And so you're describing that relaxation. And it's interesting. We've done a bunch of neuroimaging studies looking at brain activity and how that relates to physical experience. 
Uh, and there's this quality of contraction that comes with craving, with anxiety, with self-judgment, et cetera, basically when we're beating ourselves up. And there's this quality of expansion or openness that comes when we're kind to ourselves. And this correlates with a decreased activity of this network called the default mode network that's basically a self-referential network where basically when we're, you know, when we're beating ourselves up, that network is very active and we feel very contracted. And then when we are kind to ourselves or even just reflect on kindness, it, it like you said, it helps us open. It helps us relax. Yeah. So there's an example, you know, we don't even need to call that a practice, but even a kindness reflection can help us tap into what it feels like uh, to receive kindness. And then we can start practicing being kind to ourselves because we can really see that it feels pretty darn good. Yeah, I love that. And it opens and exactly goes back to opening, opening that space where mm -hmm. I think often with with addictions and habits, um, we initially don't feel there is there is that space. There's right. this there's urgency and urgency doesn't doesn't grant space. But and so that's that's really beautiful. And Judson, can you share a little bit about your own meditation practice and how you adjust that practice in accordance to maybe your own levels of anxiety? I'll say briefly, you know, I've been practicing, I guess, about 25 years now. But I'll say briefly that when I first started practicing, I had kind of no idea what I was doing. And I was, you know, I would, took my typical Western willpower based approach and you know, was trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath and all this which basically resulted in me struggling, being exhausted, you know, basically I would even sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter on long, you know, week-long meditation retreats. So that was how things started and went that way for about 10 years. <laughs> and then I really started realizing that this isn't about doing anything. It's really about being. Mm -hmm. And the more I could tap into curiosity Uh, the more that curiosity would actually help me focus and help me be concentrated because curiosity naturally draws us in without any effort. And I would say that's even evolved to just really this noticing moments when I'm closed or contracted and bringing curiosity to that, which naturally starts to open those up, you know, like we were playing with earlier with this kindness practice. And just really bringing this practice, I think of this as, as I probably picked this up from, um, from Tibetan teachings where they talk about short moments many times throughout the day, which is actually how any habit forms. The more you do something, even for a short period of time, the more that becomes a habit. So here it's just like short moments of noticing when I'm contracted, what leads to that contraction, seeing how painful it is to be contracted and then bringing in that curiosity in which naturally starts to open it up and then it's just about you know doing the same thing with kindness you know what's it like to be unkind versus to be kind and then it's just rinse and repeat you know every moment of the day that i can remember to do that it's beneficial so my brain naturally wants to do it even more yeah and even with the resistance the radical self-compassion even when resistance comes in how much can i actually also also accept and witness when i resist <laughs> yes I think that was such a that was such a crucial crucial moment for me because I think that's where my brain hijacked me where I thought like oh the resistance is coming in like I failed at the practice again I did you know <laughs> and it's like ah no it's actually that's how far it goes you accept yourself radically even in the resistance <laughs> yes yes absolutely 
So, Jolton, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I want to just say to all our listeners, please check out all his books, his website, drjot.com. He also has a phenomenal YouTube channel. There's phenomenal programs out there. Look at the look at this great app. It's really groundbreaking. And yes, thank you again for being my guest today, Jolton. It was such a such an honor and such a pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.